to the Willie Jackson Experiment. I'm your host, Willie Jackson. Oh man, you guys are going to love this show I got put together for you. So uh, one thing, we always used to joke around, uh, like uh, listen to Maiden a little bit. I'm not saying I'm a really big fan or anything, but I did listen to some Maiden back in the day. And uh, they came out with a new album, and dude, it's it's shredding. And so we kind of dig into it along with the prophecies and the true story of the writing on the wall, man. Hope you guys like it, man. Pretty good. Pretty good show for you. 666 is known as the devil's number or the number of the beast. Some people think it's a particularly unlucky or evil number, but where does it come from and what does it really mean? 666 originates from the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament. And for those of you who have read it, you know it's a pretty crazy book. It's basically the recounting of a bunch of visions by a guy who calls himself John. It includes everything from a dragon to a star falling out of the sky and turning the entire ocean to poison valleys filling with the blood of slain people, you know, pretty apocalyptic stuff. The number 666 comes in chapter 13, verses 17 to 18. In this chapter, John has a vision of a multi-headed beast rising out of the ocean. The beast has great power. It enslaves the people of Earth, it kills the saints, it forces people to blaspheme God, and it forces people to put the mark of the beast on the right hand and on the forehead. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Notice here that John's not talking about Satan and he's not talking about a demon. He's talking about something that he calls a beast and a man. So who is it? Scholars generally agree that the book of Revelation is an extended polemic against the Roman Empire. In chapter 13, the beast is meant to represent the Roman Empire itself, an evil institution that enslaves the world. The heads of the beast are therefore interpreted to be the Roman emperors. 666 is thought to be a secret code for the evilest emperor of them all, Nero. Let's take Nero's Greek name, Neron Caesar attested here on a bunch of Nero's Greek coins. And let's spell it in Hebrew letters. Both Greeks and Jews in the first century believed that every single letter had a corresponding number. Add the values of those letters together and you get 666. Sounds weird, but believe me, this was a very common practice in the ancient world called gamatria. So here are some examples. Some graffiti on a wall in Pompeii reads, I love the woman whose number is 545. So any passerby in Pompeii reading this graffiti wouldn't exactly know who it's referring to, but they would have definitely recognized the number as gamatria. Greek authors make reference to gamatria all the time. So for example, Strato of Sardis, who was a famous second century Greek poet, proves to us in one of his epigrams that he knows what gematria is and he has way too much time on his hands. Anus and gold have the same numerical value. I once discovered this while casually calculating. And he's right, the Greek word for anus and the Greek word for gold both have a value of 1,570. So gematria by no means was a fringe practice. Everybody was doing it, whether you were scrawling the name of your crush on a wall, whether you were writing bathroom humor epigrams, or whether you were writing crazy mystical apocalypses. From very early on in Christian history, Nero is viewed as the arch villain of Christianity. Early church historians like Eusebius and Roman historians 
historians like Suetonius both mention Nero violently persecuting Christians, burning them alive in Rome. Whoever wrote the Book of Revelation had a vendetta against the Roman Empire and viewed Nero as one of the greatest evils on earth. We don't exactly know why. Some scholars think that the book was written shortly after the persecutions from Nero in Rome, which would make the book surprisingly early. Other people think that the book was written later in the first century under the reign of Domitian, but we don't know if that's true because there's no evidence of persecutions happening under the reign of Domitian. Either way, this does demonstrate that the tradition surrounding Nero dates back very early in Christian history. The connection between 666 and Nero is further strengthened by chapter 13 verse 3. One of the beast's heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. According to the Jewish mystical text, the Sibylline Oracles, Nero is thought to be resurrected at the end of time to continue wreaking havoc on earth. So the book of Revelation might be tacitly referencing this tradition. After all, the author does seem to be deeply steeped in Jewish mysticism. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking this is a stretch or just a coincidence. You had to switch the Greek word into Hebrew letters. I'm not buying it. Fair enough, but two early manuscripts of the book Revelation all but seal it for me. These two manuscripts accidentally write 616 instead of 666. This isn't a simple matter of messing up a pen stroke. 616 also spells Nero in Hebrew gematria, but only if you drop off the final N. Now, 616 is probably not the original reading. Most of our manuscripts say 666. Our earliest manuscript says 666, but this does show that there was an alternative reading circulating at the time, and that alternative reading also was a cipher for the name Nero. Why the switch? Well, one New Testament scholar, Bruce Metzger, theorizes that it's the switch from the Greek form of Nero's name to the Latin form of Nero's name, which doesn't have that final N. For example, note how his name lacks the N in these Latin coins minted during his reign. Now, what started as a secret code for Nero's name has exploded into all kinds of conspiracy theories and predictions of the future. One of the more common theories is that RFID chip implants will be a harbinger of the apocalypse. And we're going to be talking about the 666, the microchip. Book of Revelation says of that time that no man would be able to buy or sell unless they received the mark of the beast. Now, as interesting as it might be to study some of these YouTube prophets and their conspiracy theories, one thing that they generally have in common is that they brush aside the historical context of the Book of Revelation. Using the text as a guidebook to tell the future rather than taking it seriously as a text from a specific historical moment in the late first century. I have a bunch of research in the description below if you'd like to dig deeper. And as always, thanks for watching and I'll see you next time. It was the 12th of October in the year 539 BC, just over 3,550 years ago. And it was during the reign of the Babylonian monarch Belshazzar. And this king, well, he knew how to party. He loved to party. And one night, he organized a big party. And what a party it was. The king's lords, his wives, his concubines, over a thousand of them, not only drinking wine, but drinking it from the sacred vessels that had been part of the ancient Jewish temple in Jerusalem, pillaged decades earlier by his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Amid all the sacrilege and revelry, an event occurred that brought all festivities to an immediate halt. A mysterious hand appeared and in fiery letters wrote a chilling message on the wall of the king's palace. If you ever wondered where the phrase, 
the handwriting on the wall originated, well, here it is. No question, this was strange and it was shocking. Who wrote this message and what did it mean? Join me as we investigate the amazing story of the handwriting on the wall that rocked an ancient empire and brought about the demise of its insolent king. This is Shred, and today I'm going to check out Iron Maiden's new single, The Writing on the Wall, to see if they have lost their mojo, or are they better than ever? Now, as it turns out, their new single just passed 6.66 million views on YouTube, so this is a good time to have a listen. Let me put on my cans of power, and we'll get to it. Here we go. We're starting off in the key of D minor here. We got an Iron Maiden shirt on this individual. Belshazzar's Feast, that's a reference to the Bible and Christian mythology. Writing on the wall happened at his feast. Oh, there's our riff. That was an Eddie knife. Eddie knife. Eddie ring, rather. Sometimes I think I'm going crazy. <clears throat> Got a nice Wild West feel. And here come the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There's a Dorian sound there. What you're going to hear throughout this video is Iron Maiden goes back and forth between D. Aeolian and D. Dorian. And the difference is, you know, that Dorian mode has a brighter sound with a twinge of major because of the four chord, or in this case, G major. You got Eddie symbols everywhere here, you're going to notice that. That says number 17, which is their forthcoming album, Senjutsu, which is going to be released in September. I would just do it now, Iron Maiden. We can't wait. Carrying the nuke of China. Alright, here we go, the chorus. So you got D minor, F, C, G. Flat. Here's the modal mixture and C. Now we switch to Aeolian. And that Dorian sound. Back to our Bon Jovi Wild West riff. Alright, here's the bad guy. 
really cool video, by the way. They put a lot of work into this. Pump full of WAP juice. Ugh. That feels good. Stretch it out. Oh, who's that hooded guy? Alright, so he made it through, but this guy, no dice. There's that B-flat Aeolian sound, C. So this is a very apocalyptic kind of song. Uh, and again, you know, like if you think about uh, the number of the beast, right, that quotes Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible. And the same thing's going on here. We're talking about the apocalypse and sourcing Revelation, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they each stand for something, which we're going to find out in a minute. Solo time and modulated to A minor. F. Whoops, that was C, G. So A minor. F, G. A minor again. C, G. This is a cool little lick here. Back to D minor. Those octaves going on. It'd be like a D minor chord, B flat C. Here's the Japanese Eddie Senjutsu. Whoa. Screw some horns. Okay, whoops, there you can see. There they are. Death, war, plague, and famine. Those are the four horsemen of the apocalypse in the Bible, and they're sent by God down to the earth to destroy the world. That's the idea. Oh. It's a really tasteful solo, by the way. Oh, decapitation. Cyborg Eddie. Pentagram imagery. And there are two human beings that we're going to find out are also part of Christian mythology.
So that's like the Adam and Eve uh, story from the Bible there, except it's slightly different in the Bible. Eve is the one who talks to the serpent, gets the apple, and then gives it to Adam. Here, Adam's giving it to Eve. Mmm. Delicious. That's a really cool video. There's a lot of layers of meaning in there. Uh, and the track itself, I think, is, is pretty strong overall. You know, at this point, Bruce Dickinson is in his early 60s. He just got through throat cancer, so you wouldn't expect him to sound like he did at, let's say, you know, his prime at 30. But uh, overall, I think the track is strong. And uh, I like that modal mixture element that they're using, going from Dorian to Aeolian. I want to know what you guys think down in the comments below. What do you think of this track? Is it a triple six out of triple six? Now, I'm going to post the tabs for this below. I just made a few notes about the harmony and included a couple licks. I'll put that on my Patreon page. And that's where I keep all of my music theory materials. I've got my scale Bible, chord Bible, music theory course. And by signing up to my Patreon, which only takes your soul, you're going to get a steady feed, a drip into your brain of materials that are going to help you level up in terms of your ear training, understanding music theory, and just absorbing the music that you hear on an analytical level so that you can then create it for your own wicked purposes. Until next time, my friends, stay evil. <laughs> Neza, the great warrior king of Babylon, ruled his kingdom from 605 BC. He was powerful and he was invincible. He had no peers. He was the uncontested ruler of the world. Soon after he ascended the throne, Nebuchadnezzar went on the warpath. He set out to invade the walled city of Jerusalem. In fact, historical records and the Bible tell us that this ancient king made three invading trips to Jerusalem. Three times he led his mighty army, 1,500 kilometers from Babylon across the Fertile Crescent to Jerusalem. And each time he attacked, he inflicted severe punishment and tribulation on the city and its inhabitants. On this first trip in 605 BC, he took home with him many of the precious golden vessels that he found in Solomon's magnificent temple. And in addition, he and his troops took hostage a selected number of young people, including Daniel, to be trained in the ways of Babylon. In 597 BC, just eight years later, Nebuchadnezzar returned to Jerusalem. This time, he took most of the remaining golden vessels and temple treasure and about 10,000 prisoners. By this time, the Jewish king Jehoiakim had abandoned any semblance of rebellion and surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar. But 11 years later, in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar invaded a third and final time. This time, he completely destroyed Solomon's temple, just leveled it to the ground and took most of Jerusalem's remaining population as captives back to Babylon with him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's capital city, Babylon, located near the modern-day city of Baghdad in Iraq, is situated in a flat desert environment. 
Although Nebuchadnezzar's wealth and power were legendary and he was known as a mighty conqueror, like most husbands, he wanted to please his wife, Amitus. She came from the mountainous region to the north. Babylon was flat and dry, desert, and she yearned for the green gardens of a mountain home. So Nebuchadnezzar arranged to build the beautiful hanging gardens of Babylon for her. These gardens are considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. King Nebuchadnezzar's power was legendary. He had finally conquered Egypt and extended his empire. And now his capital city, Babylon, was the most magnificent and the dominant city of the world. Its population reached about two million. It rose out of the desert plain with a spectacular skyline. It boasted temples, terraces and palaces. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar built three luxurious palace complexes in the city and ensured there were massive double and triple walls for protection. We're told these walls were over 100 meters high and 30 meters wide. Four chariots abreast could ride on them. Nebuchadnezzar was proud of the beauty of his palaces. In fact, he was so proud of all he had achieved and the great city that he'd built that he ordered his initials to be printed on the building bricks. At this time, Babylon was an advanced and highly developed, innovative and sophisticated society. Way back in those days, they knew all about solving quadratic equations, reciprocals, squares and square roots, cubes and cube roots. They were the world leaders in numbers, facts and figures. In fact, they were so advanced that some of their system has come down to us today. They were the ones who came up with 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, and 360 degrees in a circle. The Babylonian astronomers were also the world leaders in the study of the heavenly bodies, the planets and stars. They had carefully recorded eclipses and knew how to interpret and predict them. And in the area of commerce and economics, they'd introduced bills, promissory notes, receipts, letters of credit, compound interest, and even a system of checks. But Babylon was also a leader in some other kinds of knowledge and practices, the dark arts, the occult, magic, pagan mythology, astrology, divination and sorcery had permeated their society. The king even had an elite group of wise men, wizards, magicians and astrologers who advised him. Nebuchadnezzar had desperately sought advice from this group of wise men and seers when he'd been unable to remember his dream about a giant metal statue made of gold, silver, brass and iron. When the wise men couldn't tell the king his dream, much less interpret it, he angrily ordered them all to be executed. This execution order included the young Jewish nobleman, Daniel and his friends. Daniel requests an audience with the king and tells him there is a God in heaven who can show him and interpret the dream. Then, under God's guidance, he tells the king his dream and provides the interpretation. 
that outlines the future of the world, right through to the climax of history and the introduction of God's kingdom that will last forever. Now, about 35 years later, King Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. This time, it's about a tree and he wants to know what it means. So again, he calls in his wise men, the wizards, astrologers and magicians, and asks them to interpret his dream. Well, the same situation happens again. The wise men can't explain the dream to the king. They fail again. And then Nebuchadnezzar remembers the honest and reliable Hebrew, Daniel. So he summons Daniel, and this is what Daniel says. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. It's unbelievable, but that's exactly what happened. This powerful monarch of the world-leading empire goes mad just as the dream had predicted. For seven years, the king lived a pathetic, deranged life, eating grass in a field like an animal, until he finally responded to the message from God. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the King of Heaven, all of whose works are truth, and His ways justice, and those who walk in pride He is able to put down. Nebuchadnezzar recognises, exalts and praises God and resumes his monarchy until his death in 562 BC at the grand old age of 104. After Nebuchadnezzar's death, his son, Amel Marduk, but ironically known by the name Evil Merodach, rules the kingdom for two terrible years until he is assassinated by his own brother-in-law. Then he dies after just four years on the throne, leaving a young son. Some of the court conspirators got together and killed the young boy king and installed their own choice on the throne. His name was Nabonidus, a royal prince. But sadly, Nabonidus is a very ineffectual ruler. In the short time, only 23 years, since the great King Nebuchadnezzar has died, the golden era for Babylon has faded. And then after about six years as king, Nabonidus decides to transfer his headquarters out of the city of Babylon to the distant oasis Tamar in Arabia. Nabonidus then installs his son Belshazzar on the throne in Babylon as a co-regent or second king. History reveals that he did not worship the Babylonian patron god Marduk, but was an avid worshipper of the moon god. Now, this is unbelievable. The name of the deity, the moon god, was Sin. Now, Nabonidus, even though he was the first king, was living 1,000 kilometres away from Babylon and for the last 10 years had not even returned once to celebrate the popular New Year's festival. In addition, Nabonidus became very unpopular when he forced some of the high-class citizens of Babylon to work in labour gangs for the state. Many of the Babylonians became extremely dissatisfied 
and even joined the enemy, the growing Medo-Persian army, in a rebellion against Babylon. This caused Nabonidus to lose military battles against the Persian general Cyrus at Opus, about 180 kilometres away from Babylon, and then at Sipur, 80 kilometres north of the city. Historic accounts are very detailed about these battles, and it is recorded that the last battle happened on the 10th of October, 539 BC. Just two days later, on the 12th of October, 539 BC, the Persian troops are camped outside the city walls and besiege Babylon itself. Now, Belshazzar, son of Nabonidus and the second king of Babylon, decides that this is a perfect time to host a huge party. The Bible says 1,000 people are invited to imbibe and celebrate with him. Let's read what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Amazingly, the Babylonians did not fear the enemy troops outside their walls. They knew that their city was well fortified. There were those two sets of double walls and there were enough provisions to last for months. Even water was in good supply. The great Euphrates River flowed through heavily guarded gates right into the city. But on this night, the gates weren't guarded. Let's read the record of this night found in Daniel chapter five, verses two and three. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. The Bible account opens on a Belshazzar who remembers his heritage. The English Bible calls Belshazzar the son of Nebuchadnezzar. But as we have described in this messy royal line, Belshazzar was not his son but rather a successor, a grandson, which is how the original Aramaic word can be translated. It is in fact pointed out seven times in the chapter. In defiance, Belshazzar orders his servants to bring to him the sacred vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wants to commemorate the victory of Babylon over Jerusalem the triumph of the God of Babylon over the God of Israel. Let's read what's recorded in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 4. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Notice that these are the same metals as those on the great statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and they are listed in the same order. Through this gesture, this intoxicated monarch is deliberately and publicly showing contempt and scorn for the predictions that Babylon would come to an end one day. Suddenly, the party crowd goes silent. They are stunned as they watch a hand appears. It comes out of nowhere and begins writing in fiery letters on the wall. The people watch in awe as the handwriting slowly makes words. But nobody can read the message 
and so nobody knows what it means. However, even in their drunken state, they know that these words of fire mean trouble. A feeling of fear and trepidation sweeps over the party crowd. Terrified, the defiant king goes pale and his knees knock together. Immediately, Belshazzar cries out for the Babylonian wise men, astrologers and magicians of the kingdom, and in his desperation makes this extravagant promise. Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Remember, Belshazzar is only the second ruler of the kingdom after his father. So in desperation, he offers the highest position he can, third ruler, to anyone who can read and interpret the handwriting. But no one can. Now, Belshazzar is greatly troubled as he stares at the fiery words. His suppressed memories haunt and disturb him. And then the Queen Mother enters the banquet. She encourages Belshazzar to remember that his father, grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, believed in God and to consult the old prophet, Daniel. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called and he will give the interpretation. Daniel, an old man now, is still standing for his faith in God. He enters the courtyard and walks up to the king. Belshazzar is shaken and begs Daniel to read the fiery words. He offers the aged prophet the riches and gifts that the third person in the kingdom would be entitled to. What was Daniel's response to the king? Well, Daniel's usual tact and respect is replaced by his stern answer. Then Daniel answered and said to the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And then Daniel, in front of those thousand people, told the king how his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way that the God of heaven ruled over everything and everyone including kings. He reminded Belshazzar that Nebuchadnezzar had gone mad for seven years before he learnt that lesson. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, 
and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. And then Daniel reads and interprets the handwriting on the wall. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. That very night, the 12th of October, 539 BC, while Belshazzar and his friends partied, the enemy attacked. The ancient historians Herodotus and Xenophon record that the river was low after the hot summer and the invaders cleverly lowered it further by diverting some of the water. The Persian soldiers waded into the now knee-deep stream. When they came to the mighty river gates, they found them unguarded and open, just as the prophecy in Isaiah predicted 200 years before. Cyrus took the city of Babylon with scarcely a fight. And that very night, King Belshazzar lost his life and his kingdom. No wonder when Daniel first stepped before the drunken king, he didn't bother with the usual niceties and greeting for the king, O king, live forever. As Daniel read the writing on the wall, he knew that the king was doomed, that the king was going to die in just a short time. And that's exactly what...